Welcome everyone back to another episode of Choose Inclusion. I'm here as always with my wonderful co-hosts, Yubi and Mike. How are you guys doing? I am uh, fantastic, uh, Nina Ubaldo. I am so excited for our guest today. Yeah, good morning or good day, everyone. Uh, yeah, excited to be here and um, just getting ready for the holidays. So we have a, an amazing guest today. Uh, as um, Mike and you have already heard, I am pretty excited about this entire conversation. I don't know how we're gonna pack it into 30 minutes, but we're gonna at least touch on some of the different, many different topics that we can dive into with um, Brian Woody White. He's the Chief Diversity and Inclusion Officer at Homebridge Financial. He has held multiple um, executive positions, chief level C-suite positions at a variety of large companies, including Aetna um, and Countrywide. He's worked in the mortgage industry since 1986 um, and has often been the first uh, or only black executive at these massive companies. Um, Brian Woody, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Great to be here. So Woody, uh, the first question we always ask our guests is just um, given everything that's been going on in the world, how are, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I think um, at least for me, some of the changes and some of the uh, communications I see going on, I think it, um, it inspires me to think that uh, change is possible. Um, I believe a lot of companies are really starting to look at who they are and uh, what they're trying to do. And that makes me feel good. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. So I want to, I want to dive into kind of, you know, your role as chief diversity and inclusion officer at, at Homebridge. Cause you know, you've obviously been an executive for a very long time for multiple decades now. Um, so you've seen oftentimes what diversity and inclusion initiatives have looked like over the decades. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of, your journey into seeing what those look like and how you became, got into this position today and how you're changing things up. Sure, sure. Well, two things for me, you know, uh, most of my career has been in technology and I don't think it's any new news that there's been a lot of uh, racism and discrimination uh, in technology for a lot of um, African-Americans, Hispanics, um, just in the tech industry in general many articles out about it. Everybody knows about that. So I've experienced a lot of that in my career. And a lot of my first has always been going to companies and, you know, being the first, you know, CIO or being the first CTO or first director of development, whatever it is. Um, you know, and I can honestly say that over time, <clears throat> uh, over the last 20 years, I have only worked next to, when I say at a peer level, I've only worked next to a black woman once uh, in the 25, 30 years and uh, a black man once. Outside of that, I'm the only one in the suite and uh, that's it. You know, over the years, each company that I work with is, you know, they've, they've, they've called these initiatives various things over the years, you know, not necessarily diversity, but uh, just, you know, employee, uh, uh, communications programs. They've, they've given it so many different names. And I've always been tagged or I volunteered to, you know, work with these programs and help launch them. And many of them have been absolutely disasters. And I think one that I communicated to you was, you know, I, I walked into a meeting, which was the first meeting. And typically, if I'm involved in something, I like to actually go through what everybody else is going to go through. So I went to the first meeting and the first thing that they did was hand me a badge that said inferior black male. 
And I, I just kind of said, you know, what is it? What do you want me to do with this badge? And they said, I need you to wear it because people need to know how you feel every day of your life. And I just looked and said, what makes you think I feel like an inferior black man walking around everywhere? And just out of curiosity, what does everybody else's sign say? And the white guy said, uh, superior white male. And uh, basically, I shut down the program. I worked very hard to shut it down. It was, it was shut down. But what was also interesting was in my walk from that meeting to the executive suite, I never noticed it before, but in the lobby, we had all 50 flags of all the states of the union, and they chose to fly, you know what flag, for, for Georgia. And when I went to the suite, I brought that up at the same time. And uh, you know, at the end of the day, they eventually shut down the program, but their answer to the Confederate flag flying in the lobby was to just remove all the flags. That was their answer. So, um, you know, like I said, I've, I, I've been through a lot of these programs. Not Many have not been great. Uh, they don't get the funding they need and they tend to die on the vine. And I think you did ask me, you know, what do I plan to do at Homebridge as well? <clears throat> so from a Homebridge standpoint, you know, I started with multiple pillars, not necessarily just focused on diversity and inclusion for the employees, for example. So one of the, you know, one of the first things, uh, pillar number one, for example, is really looking at recruiting, monitoring our recruiting, seeing, you know, are we are our our recruiters really going out and trying to uh, bring in diverse diverse candidates? You know, and if you could imagine from a diversity standpoint, if I wanted to hire new college student, you know, college graduates, the bottom line is a lot of these recruiters, they'll go out, look at US News World Reports, and you know, that's where they'll focus. And if you if you go to many colleges and you look at the minority numbers, they're very low. So you can't go to UConn or University of Maryland or Yale and say, that's where I'm going to go to find African-American and Hispanic students because the, 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 it's low. You know, the participation levels are low. So you have to do something extra. And, and that's kind of what we're doing at Homebridge. We're really going the extra mile and not doing the same old thing to not only reach out to people, but do a number of things. We just partnered with a company called Circa. And Circa basically helps us get deeper into the community so that we can reach out to LGBTQ communities, African-American, Hispanic, Asian, and they will know that we have jobs available because going the old route doesn't work. The other pillar that we have going on is with our employees, you know, making sure that they're okay. How are they feeling? How are they, you know, what are they experiencing at Homebridge? So, you know, I'm gonna do things like a pulse survey and, you know, create DNI groups around the organization so that we get a good idea of how people are actually uh, doing and what they're experiencing at Homebridge. Uh, the other pillar is affordable lending. Um, the bottom line is we know the story about uh, African Americans and Hispanics and Asians, and we're just at the bottom of the pillar. You may not know this, but right now the mortgage industry has been going through a massive boom, but not in the African American community, not in the Hispanic community, not in the Asian community. And uh, the bottom line is we have to fix that. And you know to fix that issue. We can talk about it later in terms of why the, you know, the minority community is not involved in the boom, but that's going to be a focus for Homebridge as well. In addition to that, we're also going to be focused on uh, business contracts. So, you know, we're a big company. We're nationwide. You know, we, we do, we have cleaning contracts, you know, t-shirts, all sorts of things. So I'm going to be going through those contracts as well, appraisal companies to see where we can give women-owned businesses and minority business some of that some of that opportunity as well. 
And uh, we also at Homebridge just launched what we call our homegrown program, which is basically taking people who may not have a college degree and walking them through the process of, of uh, obtaining positions in, in the mortgage space, you know, processors, underwriters, you know, the bottom line is for me, the, the, the current education system, we got to get away from people learning wood shop and home ec. People have to come out with other skills and uh, that's our effort to try and do that. Mike and Yubi, I know that I, I'm going to end up dominating this entire conversation with questions. So I want to give you space before I take over and ask Woody all the questions. No, I'm good. I mean, there was so much in what you just talked about, Woody, right there. Like, I don't want to waste time with my voice. You go for it because I know we have a lot to pack in. <laughs> Same here. I, I, I just need to be a listener today because this is going to be amazing. All right. So then I will dive into the next question then, because I think one of the things that you really hit on, Woody, was really around the um, the kind of inequities around financial literacy, the impact that has, the lack of opportunities in Black, Latinx, um, and you know, specific um, Asian communities, Pacific Islander communities. Um, can you give us kind of a little bit of uh, history lesson in a way of kind of how this lack of trust has been forged with the, the lending industry and the financial industry with the black community and, and you know, what, what that impact has been. Sure, sure, no, no problem. So, you know, when, when you take a look at the numbers, you know, and you see a boom like we have right now and you realize that, you know, African-Americans, Hispanics and, and Asians are still struggling to get into a home, right? You, you still hear the same thing. I'm the first to get into a, you know, to buy a house. You know, it's 2020 and we're still hearing that same thing. And, you know, people have to understand that when it comes to things like down payments, it takes almost 10 to 15 years now to save enough money for a down payment given the cost of homes today. So I'm going to give you an idea of the, the, the number of reasons why Blacks primarily as well as Hispanics and Asians just don't, uh, you know, participate the way we should. And the first reason has to do with the lack of historical knowledge and transfer. So for example, in the black community, there is no big, you know, you know, uh, there's no massive history of, of our people owning homes, you know, so we can't go to Uncle Joe and, and Uncle Joe is passing down all these stories about how we got a mortgage you know, what is a step, you know, what is an arm and none, none of that is there. And we know that because if we know that African-Americans, Hispanics and Asians aren't participating, then that knowledge is not being transferred. So it's not a dinner table conversation about mortgages, how to get mortgages. So, you know, year after year after year after year, it's just a bunch of people that are basically very astute in how to get, get rent and how to rent an apartment. But Beyond that, it's just lot, not a lot of historical knowledge that's passed down and people just think, you know, they're very fearful of the process. And now I'll talk about why they're fearful of the process. So there's lack of trust. You know, there, there was a time when I was growing up and everybody in the neighborhood had things like Christmas club accounts, you know, and people were saving their money in Christmas club accounts and things like that where you get no interest. You know, but banks were basically pawning that stuff off on the African-American community, the, you know, the, the Hispanic community like it was great. But, 
you know, for what it is, it's really an account that gives you no kind of interest and you're just popping your money in there and the bank is floating the cash. So when it gets, when you get to the lack of trust, you have to go all the way back and you have to remember, and I'm not talking about middle passage back, you know, I'm talking about when, you know, in our communities. So let me give it to you like this. If there's no historical knowledge passed down about mortgages, what historical knowledge is passed down in the black community? Well, things like the Tuskegee experiment. We know that the government sanctioned number of things against black men and they experimented on us. So it's stuff like that. Then you take a look at what happened in 2008, the subprime scenario where mostly minorities were crushed and there's just no trust. So it's gonna be kind of hard to go into the black community and say, you know, you can get a home, you should trust us. It's just not gonna be that easy. You're gonna, you know, everybody's gonna have to go the extra mile to get these communities to trust again. And if you understand uh, where the mortgage industry is right now, the biggest opportunities for mortgage companies is in the African-American and Latino and Asian community. So if there's no trust there, mortgage companies have to do something different. They have to get more grassroots than they're doing today. The other issue, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead, please. The other issue is a lack of understanding of the mortgage process, right? If there's no historical knowledge, people think they understand the mortgage process when they really don't. And they'll listen to all sorts of rumors. You know, the bottom line is when you're going to get a mortgage, the first thing everybody has to understand is this is most likely going to be the biggest purchase you're going to make. So you can imagine if you go get a car and they're looking at your credit and everything, that also means that if you go get a house, they're drilling into your background like you couldn't believe. And the first thing that a lot of minority uh, uh, borrowers don't have are good budgets. You know, details about what, where they are, what their debt to income ratio, they're, they're learning all of this at the same time they're trying to get a mortgage and it, it just becomes daunting. And, and it, that lack of understanding just drives people away. And then you have the fourth issue, which is racism, you know? The bottom line is I was watching uh, Good Morning America and they had a, uh, a little documentary about how a black woman who had a white husband, she decided to go get an appraisal for her home. But because she was black in the neighborhood, they appraised her house $100,000 less than every other home in the neighborhood. So what she decided to do was get rid of all the photos in the house, call another appraisal company that also gave them a poor appraisal called them back with a different appraiser and it was appraised $100,000 more. So these kinds of biases and racism, all of that gets bundled in with the lack of trust. And when you look at it all together, you know, in terms of a package, that's why uh, African-Americans, Hispanics and Asians are just not in the loop. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, it's such a multi-layered problem, right? Like we, our, our brains just want the simplest answer. And we're kind of like, let's blame this company or this company, or let's blame this president or let's blame Congress or, you know, let's blame the individual for not knowing better. And it, there's just so many layers to all of this. And I think one of the interesting conversations we had was about, um, because I think the 2008 housing crisis is a, is a great explanation of like how this stuff is so multi-layered. Could you talk to us about like how a lot of the the housing crisis of 2008, which you know was the single biggest wipeout of Black wealth in in recent history, um, 
was kind of fueled by Congress in a way. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that played out when it came to the private sector? Yeah, you know, I, I think overall, you know, we all know what happened with subprime loans. They were, you know, basically loans that got people in the homes and in, in a way it funded people's dreams. You know, you, you have people that had a certain amount of income, but, you know, everybody played with the numbers to allow people to get into homes they truly could not afford. And, uh, you know, it's great to allow people to dream to get a home, but you have to get homes that make sense for your budget. But the bottom line is, you know, during that time, the prices of homes just went through the roof. And most people in most neighborhoods knew the house next door was probably worth $200,000. But during that time, the price got jacked up to a half a million. And really what the consumer was supposed to do was walk away, just say, you know what, can't afford it, walk away. But what ended up happening was there was a lot of uproar, you know, Congress had to get involved, people can't afford homes and, you know, you know, looking for, you know, mortgage companies and financial services to be more creative. And they were more creative. They created the subprime loan and it did allow people to get into homes, but you know, it got to a point where you, you had no documentation loans. You know, if you go back and look at it today, you, you'd say it's ridiculous that we were giving people homes, you know, with the kind of low level documentation we were doing. But, you know, at that point we were funding dreams and uh, not necessarily what people could afford. And uh, we know how that worked out. It basically crashed the industry from a bond level and everything uh, just fell apart. So, you know, and the minority community got hurt more than anyone else. Do you see anything similar coming up on the horizon um, <laughs> for, for the potential economic impacts of everything that's happening now to kind of black, Latinx, you know, underrepresented communities? Yeah, I think we're, I think we're all gonna have to take a look at uh, what comes next post COVID. Right, because if if from a impact standpoint, if more African Americans and Hispanics are impacted by COVID, you know, when I say impacted, what I mean is losing their jobs and eating up all their savings to survive. So if if a lot of people have eaten up their savings to survive and that savings was really previously to buy homes and other things, the impact of COVID is yet to be seen. You know, I think. Everybody wants to, you know, probably think that uh, we'll recover quickly. And I think from, a, from, an, from an economist standpoint that it might seem that way, but when you get down into the communities, the recovery is not gonna be as fast. You know, any, anybody that uh, struggled before and they lost all their income and their savings, it's gonna be, it's gonna be major. You'd mentioned before we started recording you know, kind of the the discussions around the impact of the incoming Biden administration. What what, what do you what do you see? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, and on you know, is this going to help sort of at least course start to course correct in a better direction? I would say that uh, probably under a Biden administration, you'll see a lot more focus on things like affordable lending. I think. Um, the Biden administration will try to figure out a way to be more inclusive with programs. Um, but at the same time, 
you know, it's it's a pretty devastating scenario that's going on right now. And, um, you know, you can't, you know, as much as I know, it seems like uh, we can continue to hand out money. If you remember from a whole quantitative easing standpoint, you know, a lot of that has to be paid back at some point. I just don't want a situation to occur where we, we, we get to a point where there's, there's too much money going out and all of a sudden, you know, taxes and everything get to a point where nobody wants to donate. You know, it, it, there, there are backlashes for many things that have to happen. And I'm just hoping that uh, a Biden administration can manage all of that because there are many components to what we're dealing with right now. Woody, I, um, in our pre-call too, you, you had talked about something that uh, um, slightly relatable to me when you talked about as, as CIO, CTO, as, as a leader in organizations uh, previous, how you would go to trade shows and stuff. And, um, and, and as an executive, you would go to booze and, and individuals that were bending those booze wouldn't even acknowledge you because uh, you're black. Can you talk a little bit more about that story, please? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I would say um, that's been going on for the entire time that I was a manager in IT. I would go to big conferences. Um, you know, I'd walk up to a booth and it was almost as if I was invisible. You know, sometimes I would do things just to force them to say something like, you know how they have trinkets? I just start picking up trinkets and finally somebody would say, hey, 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 you know, how can we help you? But, uh, you know, typically it was almost like being invisible. And sometimes I would play games with them. You know, give you an example. I would have people uh, who work for me, you know, um, go to these conferences with me. And I'd tell them, I said, watch what happens when I walk up. And we'd walk up to uh, the booth together. It would just say, you know, the name of the company, but it wouldn't list our positions. And they would focus on him and not even answer any of my questions. You know, and uh, oh, oh you know, I would say somewhere around maybe after being in the senior tech space after around five years, I started tracking it. And I just started looking at some of the vendors who pretty much ignored me and some of their platforms weren't really that great, but I wanted to find out more. And uh, when I added it up, you know, it's about $45 million loss because they had no interest in answering my questions. And it's, it's, it's still common today. You know, when I, go to a, when I go to a conference, I never know what's gonna happen, but sometimes I'll get tired of begging for attention and, you know, I'll go do something else. That is just, I mean, I think that's such a powerful stat, Woody. I mean, just like, I'm so glad you tracked it, first of all, because I think that's really important that you tracked it so you can, so you can put a number behind this story. I mean, you know, there are very powerful Black people in highly influential positions, but because of historical and systemic racism, people are losing out on opportunities. They're losing out on, I mean, $45 million is nothing to, <laughs> to build. Yeah. Like, that's a lot of money. And um, it's really, it's shameful, honestly, on every single person that manned those booths. Um, if every single one of them went back to their CEOs and said, oh, by the way, I just lost us a million dollar contract today. <laughs> like, right. How different would this entire landscape look? Um, exactly. You know, there's another thing I, too, I, I, I left out when we talked about a Biden administration. <clears throat> you know, after 2008, there was a lot of regulation installed in the financial services industry. And 
I think a lot of the boom that we're experiencing right now is is because of Trump relaxing some of those uh, regulations. <clears throat> so it'll be interesting to see what Biden does uh, regarding some of those regulations and um, whether or not the boom continues as a result. Woody, what are, you know, just last couple minutes, you know, what, what are your um, 2021 hopes? <laughs> you know, what are you, what are the, the, the big things that you'd like to see happen? Just, just, you know, in general, in your industry um, that, that you think can happen next year? Uh, I would like to see the momentum continue. Um, recognizing that uh, there is some underserved going on in some of these uh, financial industries and some of the financial areas. <clears throat> I would love to see companies continue the push to address some of those uh, underserved issues and uh, make serious change. You know, it's very easy to talk about it, but like I said before, you know, making change when it comes to things like affordable lending and, you know, education and other areas, it's, it's just not something you're gonna do with people going to a website. These are grassroots effort that you have to get down into the community and you have to work with the community to make change. Like I said, not a lot of trust. So you can't just send out a flyer and think everything's gonna be okay. And I just hope companies are not just up for the effort in terms of creating departments to address some of this, but also providing the funding and and the understanding that some of this is going to be a grassroots effort to to uh, inspire and uh, implement change. Yeah, it makes me think of um, like Stacey Abrams' work in in Georgia, right, and and yep. her efforts over the last twelve years, right. It's been twelve years, or um, you know, <laughs> Judge Carlos Moore, who we interviewed, who he he spent, gosh, I think at least the last four years working to get the flag changed in Mississippi, right? They, these aren't, these, the, you know, these aren't efforts that will just happen to your point. Like the companies, our, our country, like these are things that, yeah, I mean, it starts with each, every one of us and it's going to take some time, but, yeah. but we can, you know, we do it that way and it's not performative. <clears throat> you, I think we can see the change. At least that's what I'm hopeful for. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, these are systemic issues and it, ta it will take more to make change. Well, Woody, this has been an amazing conversation. I really wanna thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for joining us today. I think we've hit on so many important elements of what companies can do, uh, what government needs to do, um, what, how we can engage grassroots efforts and community organizations and, and making this change and kind of all the different layers involved in this. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today, Woody. We really appreciate it. Not a problem. Happy to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually sad, Woody, that we, we don't have like a four-part series set up with you because I don't think 30 minutes is enough, my friend. So uh, thank you as well for the, for the education, for what you do, and more importantly, how you do it. Not a problem. Just happy to be here and uh, share whatever knowledge I have and, you know, be happy to come back anytime. Awesome. We would love to have you back. Let's like definitely check back in six months and see where we're at with the housing industry, the mortgage industry, financial industry and everything. And hopefully things will be in a much better place, but I would love to see how um, everything plays out for you as well. So thank you. Thank you to all of our listeners. 
Um, as usual, you can uh, find all of our episodes on our website, chooseinclusion.com. Catch us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, uh, all the usual things. And uh, we will catch you all next time. Have a good one, everyone. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.